As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I have the opportunity to sit across from an incredible leader that I get to work with and uh, Meredith Meyer. Meredith and I were introduced by a mutual friend of ours, Brian Ross, about three years ago, right when Meredith was beginning her journey as CEO of Infinite Potential. Meredith's also now on the faculty of the Talent Magnet Institute. She sits on the board of directors for the P&G Alumni Network and is actively involved in Leadership Cincinnati Steering Committee as well as leadership programming for our future. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Meredith, one of the things that I'm inspired by, by working closely with you and your leadership, which I was forewarned by Brian, that Meredith brings the right kind of view as it relates to leadership, the intersection of strategic planning and leadership, marketing and communications, and how that flows into strategy for the future of workforce, which, to be frank, I'm sure that has a lot to do with even the name of your organization, Infinite Mm -hmm. Potential. Yeah, so my business is primarily founded on the idea that strategic planning and talent need to be perfectly integrated with each other in an organization. I come from a business management background, from a strategic planning background, not from a human resources background, but I grew to really value the role of people and building skills and capabilities as part of the strategic planning process. And often when I talk with organizations, when I look at their strategic plan, people is the fourth or fifth bucket down the list. It's not really integrated into the day-to-day business results that they're looking for. So it's more of an afterthought. And I think that talent is on every CEO's mind. I mean, there's not anyone who's not saying, wow, there's a war for talent. We want to get the best people here. But that's not always reflected in the strategic planning. And that's actually something that I found a few years into my role as the VP of strategic planning and the last organization that I worked with is that We had great talent in that organization. It was incredible. We were sourcing people from around the country, some of the smartest people that I've ever worked with, but we weren't really doing anything for them. We would get them there and then just kind of unleash them, but there was no support for that. There was no development. We had some great benefits and pay, and that was kind of nestled under the CFO wasn't being integrated strategically into our planning. And that's when I took responsibility within that organization for really bringing strategic planning and HR together within my division and saw the power of that. And that really fueled my passion for talent development, for all of those talent processes. And I saw how strategic they were, and it ultimately ended in me shifting my career in that direction. Mm, That's outstanding. And I know we have had conversations with leaders about the impact of people yeah, and the value, absolutely. right? You, The whole phrase of humanification. I attended a conference in Manhattan two years ago by Wobi World Business Forum. It was all about humanification. And the feedback is you can't achieve any of your business goals right. without people, right? Humans are what make this happen. So how do you unlock 
the human potential? How do you unlock those individuals and unleash them to become the best they can be in all things, but also help you achieve things you never even thought possible? And is that part of what motivated you in this space? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think by nature, I am a champion of people. I mean, I love to see people reach their fullest potential. I also think that has to be crosswalk, to your point, with business goals and needs. I see that disconnected, too, sometimes. Sometimes there's this kind of really altruistic goal of helping people reach their potential, but their potential may be somewhere else or doing something completely different. So trying to figure out, kind of as an HR leader, how you determine what the business needs are and then how the people fit into that or don't and be really honest and respectful about that, I think is just a fundamental skill for HR leaders in the future. When you mention that, I think of, and I can literally visualize some organizations who may feel like their greatest failure would be letting someone go even though they no longer fit into the organization, mm -hmm. right? So when you talk about that of like yeah. seeing people, how they really fit into an organization, do they fit? Have we kept them too long? Are we right. actually doing them a disservice by putting them in a role that might not be to help them reach their fullest potential? Have you seen any of that in the That's work that exactly you do? Right. Yes, I see that all the time. That's actually one of the things that I was thinking about as I built my business and, and launched it is this kind of a idea of fierce kindness when it comes to people. And I know that that word doesn't have that much of a role in business, but what does it mean to truly be kind to someone as their manager, as a leader? That's not being nice. That's looking at them in the lens of reality and helping them get to their best place and telling them what they need to hear to get there. And sometimes that's why I I talk about fierce kindness in management relationships because it's really hard. It's not easy. But the best thing for people is often to get them out of the situation and moving towards something where they can be put to their best use. Mm -hmm. So I do feel really strongly about that. All that has to be done in a way that's very respectful, though. And that's something um, I'm really passionate about, kind of stamping out behaviors that look like bullying that are inhospitable and creating psychological safety in organizations too. But yet, making sure that people don't fit are not part of that organization yeah. any longer. Do so. you, Meredith, with your experiences, have you been in a role where your leadership provided that kind of culture and that's what inspired you? Or have you been in roles that's been the opposite and you saw the Both. potential? Where did that yeah, I mean, I think in terms of my personal leadership journey, I think like many leaders that I see, my biggest firing or laying people off is probably the hardest role that I've mm -hmm. had to play. And I've done quite a bit of it. And I've had to get to a place where I just reframe my thinking on that. But doing that with respect and kindness and seeing people off and being able to give them a hug and knowing that they're going on to the next best thing for them, mm -hmm. it took me years. And I mean, you do that and then you might go cry in the bathroom afterward. I mean, that is the hard work of leadership. But I've also seen the other side of it, where bad behavior is happening and intervention needs to happen. And that really propelled me into this work too, because I believe that people's happiness at work really is something that they bring way beyond the walls of the workplace. I mean, that's contributing to the community, to their families, all of that. So... It's incredibly important. Yeah, there's a couple of things you just hit on, Meredith. I'm going to share a couple of examples personally. So one, what you just finished with, the latter part, cultural toxicity 
inside of organizations will impact the way humans go home and the way they look at the rest of the world based on the stress level that they carry going into their workplace each and every day. And how can we as employers, as leaders, be really open about that, right? That we Mm -hmm. need people to show up in their relationships, community, and life And the way we can help them as an employer opportunity is the environment you create in the workplace and the opportunity that we all really, the calling that we all have to be. And that's one of the underlying values of the Talent Magnet Institute and our podcast is really to give people the freedom and the advice and for them to hear, you know what, if he or she can do that, I can do that. But our toxicity that if an organization is toxic, that will show up and the way they approach everything else in life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And many of those that have that, their relationships may be telling them that. And either they've shut it off because this is my job, or the other encouragement that we have here is that they can be the change. You know, I talk a lot about with leaders as we enter into leadership programs and we define the future of leadership and we look at the you know, over the next decade, we need this. I really hear that as that's what we need to be. Like we are the leaders now and we can take this challenge on ourselves and it might be hard. And guess what? If you get fired because you're trying to lead well and trying to change the environment, it's probably not meant for you to be there. On the other hand, if you approach it well and you act, don't react and you stay current with people and you attack the problem, not the person, you may find that people will learn that skill from you too and come alongside of you in that effort. The other thing you referenced, and this is a big part of the work that we're doing with the Talent Magnet Institute, is on ambassadors, right? So we talk about when people leave you, what's their experience with you? And how's that going to show up in the market? I know at Centennial, we've had individuals that I've been responsible for that keeping them here would have made them miserable. Mm-hmm. And we had to go help them find their next great position. The impact of that now is seeing what really, to be frank, what my father created of an environment. Like, hey, you've been with me eight years. I think the next two years you're meant to go do something else. You know, we always kind of joke like once people got you know, to a certain point in their career, he encouraged them to go do something else. And his comment was, no, I encourage them to really think about where they want to be next. Right. And not that you're stuck here. Right. And we've had that opportunity and the ambassadors that those individuals become for a brand, for an organization, for relationships. You know, I'm always encouraged when I get a referral that, hey, I just met with Amber Baumgartner, who's my physical trainer, and I heard that she used to work with you and she referred me to you. And it's another executive in town who's new to town that just met her fitness training profession now. Mm -hmm. and. We've got some friends of ours that left to go create breakout games and do now they're doing the whole Nerf gun experience and that whole thing. But, you know, hey, they're still great ambassadors in the community. They can be our greatest assets and relationships. And that speaks highly of your culture. If you get people who leave that you never hear from again, that might be a problem. And we should all address that and evaluate that. I agree. As you look at, you know, we all, the proverbial HR at the table experience, mm-hmm. how does that comment strike you that HR should be at the table? Or I absolutely believe that HR should be at the table. I think that's one of the challenges that I see 
with people trying to align talent and strategy within their organizations is that HR is not at the table. HR may be reporting up through more of a compliance-focused function. The CEO might be a couple steps removed from HR and that input. That is simply one of the biggest challenges with making sure that people are embedded in the thinking about the strategic plan. I'm in a situation where I see CEOs and HR leaders kind of at just kind of passing ships in the night. I think CEOs come frequently knowing their business, knowing finance, knowing operations, knowing that people are important and how to lead, but not understanding at all kind of the mechanics of HR. That's just a function that they're never close to. That's not generally part of their training. And then CHROs, at least over the last 20 years, haven't necessarily been raised up on business practices. So they know how to run HR processes, but they might not know how to link their work to business results. So the two of them often aren't talking. And I'll hear CEOs frustrated that their HR leader's not strategic enough. And that may or may not be the case, but often it's just that they're speaking a different language too. So I think that's a real challenge facing a lot of organizations, particularly smaller organizations, that don't may not have the funding or the need for a chief HR officer or someone at that level, but they need someone who's thinking strategically about talent, but also running the trains basically mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. So I definitely run into a lot of challenges there. I think really the crux of a lot of this is that most CEOs rely on data and to make decisions about their business. And we're struggling with that to some degree in talent. There are so many technology platforms available. There's so much data that's becoming available. But I don't know that we've quite figured out what to do with it yet. Mm -hmm. I think especially small and mid-sized organizations have less capacity to run that. And so what does that look like for them? I personally feel like it's fully possible, and I've worked with clients on that before, to really identify in a quantitative way, I mean, who are the best people to hire? Mm -hmm. Who are the most effective managers that you have? How much additional business success does that lead to? I mean, all of these things are possible. We're just not really thinking with that lens yet, like Mm -hmm. trying to put a fine point on the quantitative strategic pieces Mm -hmm. of the HR equation. Yeah. We discussed in episode five with Jennifer McClure, her comment was, that I was able to step up my HR game by not walking in and saying this is the right thing to do for people, but coming in with data. That's exactly right. And providing the business. And I know in episode 32, we had a very similar discussion with Beth Gilio. And I think similar to yourself, Beth's background, your background, and I think those listening, if this is an area of interest where you feel like you want to have a great impact, you do not have to go the traditional, quote unquote, HR path. And I think the future traditional path will be the non-traditional path for the future Mm -hmm. of human resources and people and culture. Can you expound on that from your own experience? Yes, absolutely. You know, I see both sides of it. I have a deep respect for HR professionals and experts. I think I can sometimes find CEOs and other executives a little bit dismissive of the function, and I don't think that that's appropriate. Of course, it depends on the individual, but I think as a function, there's a lot of expertise there. That being said, what it means to be an HR leader is changing dramatically right now. I mean, in the last five or 10 years, I feel like the skills have gone way beyond HR process to how do you manage data and analytics? How do you tie this to finance and accounting processes? You're essentially a 
product manager for employee experience. I mean, you're doing marketing, you're doing customer service, the sales. I mean, it's very much kind of a business generalist role as opposed to running and optimizing HR processes. So what does that individual look like? There are people who have spent their career in HR who can absolutely flex their, who have been operating that way the whole time. And then there are people who come from marketing, who come from core business leadership, maybe even who come from finance and accounting and operations who are going to slide into these roles. And that's happening a lot. Unfortunately, I actually think, because I think we might be losing some of that expertise too, but a lot of CEOs, especially at larger companies, are pulling chief HR officers from line business Mm -hmm. as opposed to from the HR function. So there's really kind of a reckoning happening in the profession right now. I think it's just going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 10 years. One of the things that we are seeing at Centennial from a search and senior leadership side are CEOs making those decisions based on the healthiest teams in the organization? Mm-hmm. Where's the innovation coming from? Where are the best people practices? Absolutely. And fortunately, they're being identified. Unfortunately, it's not coming in all cases out of the function. Yes. Right? So you see individuals getting pulled over specifically from marketing. I love mm-hmm. the tie, and I'd love to go a little deeper here with yes. the marketing conversation because we've talked about – I remember four or five years ago when we started talking about becoming a talent magnet, I actually led a conversation with a really good customer of mine, Richie Pack, who's a chief sales officer. And we actually did a presentation to a national industry group. And he spoke about sales. I spoke about talent. And we showed how similar those two worlds are, right? You want to Mm -hmm. attract and retain customers. You want to innovate and provide the future for your customer experience. And you want to be out ahead of your competition. And you want to target. And you want to laser focus and invest all of your dollars on your existing and future customers. And then my angle from a talent perspective was – You want to attract and retain your best talent. You want to go out and be laser focused on the right people and invest in creating the right environment for retention. You know, same conversation. Yes. And you dove into it a little bit. Can you share some more deeper perceptions and thoughts there? Yes. I actually believe that customer client experience and employee experience are nearly one and the same. It's interesting. I mean, the idea of employer brand is come up a lot in the last five or 10 years. I don't think that your brand or what you're offering clients and customers is any different than what you're living in your organization. So certainly you need to share the benefits of working at your organization. But I feel like all of those things are lived things. I mean, your customer experiences, what your employees experience as someone who's working in your organization. I mean, they're bringing that directly to your customers and clients. I mean, that's kind of a one-to-one relationship to me. And I actually see more and more roles that are combined. So there's an employee and client success leader because organizations are starting to see that how you treat your employees is exactly how they're going to treat clients and customers and exactly kind of what business what's going to come out of your organization. So I think that those things are inextricably linked. I mean, to the point where I would do them separately. I wouldn't build out that work separately Mm -hmm. because it all needs to flow. And that's the most authentic way of Mm -hmm. delivering client experience is to get your employee experience right. Absolutely. Yeah, I was asked, Meredith, on a panel recently about what about this employment brand thing? Mm -hmm. And the honest feedback, my immediate response is don't try to fake it. Yes. Right? So 
know truly what it is. Don't say this is who we yes, who absolutely. we think we want to be or who we want to be if it's not being lived in your environment. Just like you don't want to attract a customer if you can't provide the service or product that they're seeking. You shouldn't try to go attract talent if you can't provide the experience and the real live day-to-day experience that you say and profess to be. And it will be sniffed out. Right. It's yes. one way to create brand detractors. Absolutely. Is by telling the inaccurate story and then letting people see the inaccurate experience in your culture. The other dynamic is if you're not managing it, someone else is. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you don't truly understand it and you've not taken the time to get the voice of your team, just like if you've not taken the time to really understand the customer experience. Someone else is telling that, is writing that narrative for you, and it might not be the narrative you want. Yeah. And I believe that you and I have both experienced that with clients, both on the positive and on the negative, and are desiring for organizations to really lean into this differently. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think your job when you're thinking about your employer brand and talking to potential candidates is to most authentically represent your organization. I mean, you want to find people who are going to be successful in the organization that you have or that's close aspirationally that you're moving towards, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the best candidate isn't the best person on paper. It's the best person who fits in your organization and is going to be excel there. So I feel like that lie at the beginning is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, just for the success of your organization, not just for your relationship with that individual and what they might say about you later. That's just getting that right and being real honest with yourself about who does and doesn't fit here. Even if you wish there were people who you could bring in, but you can't because that's just not what you've built. That's not the culture or the way that you operate. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important, that authenticity. Yeah. The other dynamic is if there are people who you wish could fit, but they don't historically, Mm -hmm. the question is, what can you learn Mm -hmm. from that experience to help change your behavior? And in many cases, it's almost like eye-opening experiences. I know when we do the cultural audit with organizations, Mm -hmm. it first feels like a slap in the face because you're hitting reality or you're running into a brick wall that's like, well, that is who we are because your people said so, not because you thought so. That's the mistake a lot of executives make is they only think about what the executives say. And that's not where culture shows up, right? right? They say culture shows up when the executive leaves the room. And what's the lived behaviors and experiences that those people left in the room have that are really the ones executing your business model and your plan and executing – they're the closest one to the products and service for your customers. Those are the voices that should overweigh what the executive's lens is Mm -hmm. and getting to know the people and the strategy. And the other question that I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't dive in here because it's constantly on my mind. I was just talking with a client yesterday about this is you build a really strong culture in an organization. To what degree do you want to make sure you keep getting people who perfectly fit there? And to what degree do you want to bring in diverse voices that are going to really push that culture? And kind of what is getting that balance right is really important because you've built something beautiful. And assuming that this is a positive culture, you've built a really positive, strong culture. You have people who are rowing in the same direction. But at what point does that look are all the people just too similar and you can't see you're in a you're in a new box that you can't see outside of anymore and what does it mean to that culture to start and how do you welcome people who are different if you choose to bring in different people or different voices so i think that's a kind of a constant struggle particularly with organizations that are growing and trying to figure out what that culture looks like 
Yeah, the openness to that. Because you're right. It's like if here are the people we need, we need to understand why we need the people that we need for our future. And sometimes when you're in such a vacuum, you don't know the diversity of thought that you're missing. But you Mm -hmm. know where it can show up is that it immediately expels itself when it gets there. Right. Because you're not as welcoming, but yet we're, you know, we're cut from the same cloth or we want to hire the same thought processes because it's been successful. And how do we make, again, inclusion the verb of what does that look like? What does action look like? And how do we embody people? And a great place to start, a safe place to start is to ask, listen and learn from your people. And say, we really want to go down this journey and we want to understand who the best is for our future. The other great, and I know that Proctor and Gamble has done a lot of this work, and I'm sure you were a part of this, is understanding our customers. What do our customers think, believe, experience, and how do we look similar to that so we understand the mind of our customer? Is another approach that some organizations have framed it in. We need to look like our customers. And our customers don't all look like us and don't all think right. like us and didn't all grow up like us. So let's go do meaningful research. The research component is really critical to this, asking mm-hmm. the right questions. And typically, as I shared on this panel I referenced earlier on workforce, it's not you doing your own research because people may not tell you what you really need to hear. And that's where, in many cases, an outside expert or someone on your team that's the most trusted person in your team that can give you some real insights. Mm -hmm. Meredith, are there any other perspectives that you would want to leave our listeners with on the future of talent, future Mm -hmm. of leadership? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that we're all aware of, but I've been thinking about a lot in terms of what does it mean for organizations and cultures is just the fact that the world is accelerating and changing so fast right now. And what does that mean in the workplace and for a talent leader? I really think just sharing an example on this it is really mind-opening. But let's go back to 1900. Buckminster Fuller was looking at the rate of change in the world, and he created this knowledge doubling curve. Every 100 years, the amount of human knowledge would double. So your life didn't change that much in the course of 100 years. Fast forward through the 80s and 90s and the computers and the internet and all of this. In the last year, based on nanotechnology and the emerging internet of things, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. We can't keep up with that. There are so many tools that are coming at us, ways to change your mindset. There's just no playbook anymore. Like that's the thing that's changing in business that I feel like I bump up against that sometimes. And I, in my last role, I remember, for example, I had a CEO who's one of the smartest people I've ever worked with, has run 20 companies before, you know, around the world in his career. But he came in with a playbook in terms of here are the values that we're going to have in this organization. Here's how it's going to happen. This is what leadership looks like. And it just didn't work. We're at the end of that. There's not a business playbook anymore, particularly when it comes to people. So as we're thinking about skills and the future of talent, it's really about how fast you can learn and change and adapt. Things like, I mean, learning management, change management, those are the skills that 
people who are in people leadership roles really need to have. And I think it also as a result of that, people are really overwhelmed. I mean, people are coming in to work with their heads spinning. It's interesting. Airbnb always tops, you know, it's near the top of a lot of the list of best places to work around the country. And I was, you know, reading through and kind of studying some of the things that they're doing. And one of the things that they're the proudest of is their, I think they call it their sustainable performance initiative. They teach people how to manage their email intake and how to run meetings effectively. And the CHRO is touting that as the reason that they're on the top of this list. And I thought that was so fascinating because that sort of stuff is killing people right now. People check their phone 150 times a day on average. They spend 25% of their time answering emails. And usually answering emails is not getting work done. That's furthering your business necessarily. It might be. There's so many platforms and systems and things flying at people and communication and expectations that no one can keep up with it. So trying to figure out how to simplify things for employees is incredibly important, like the number one most important thing. It's interesting. I mean, it's not sexy, right? That's not what you would think that someone would be touting who's at the top of LinkedIn's list of best places to work. But it is because they know the reality of this. And I actually think that's a place where millennials are helping us. They're kind of, I think millennials are actually giving us a number of gifts in the workplace. But millennials have no patience for doing things the way they've always been done. I mean, they're always looking for better, faster, smarter ways. And I even hate grouping millennials at this point because I feel like they're just the next wave of leaders. But the up-and-coming leaders in our organizations are really pushing on that. And it frustrates people who have kind of paid their dues and put in time on these processes, but they have grown up in this world of two of ultra-fast change and so much stuff going on. And they can help us figure that out, I think. And I think the last piece of that that I'm really, really interested in is just with all this interconnected kind of fast-moving change, people are working all the time. I mean, the numbers are really incredible. More than half of the United States is working more than 50 hours a week. We are working a lot of hours. I actually got surprised when I looked at that breakdown. And I feel like we've figured out how to do work during family time, but we haven't figured out how to bring our humanity into the workplace yet. And I actually think that's going to be a really important trend. I'm working with a client now who's great at that. I mean, it's a, the leadership team is all millennial. And I think that they understand that they're answering emails at 11.30 p.m. They're going to bring some of their stuff into the workplace. And that's going to be just a part of how we do business. I think that that – I'm not sure what the playbook – and I shouldn't say that since I don't think there should be playbooks at this point. But I'm not sure what the right way to approach that is. For each organization, it looks different. But I do think that we're just more human workplaces – is going to be a focus too. And this is all the soft stuff. I'm a big champion of analytics too and all of the business elements of this. But that human side, it has to come right along with it. It seems counterintuitive, I think, in the world of AI and machine learning and the machines taking over. But I actually think that's going to serve to bring out our humanity even more because those machines are going to do all the jobs that aren't human. So I really think there's going to be a shift towards that that we're going to have to grapple with. So I think that the future is going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to working through it. Well, Meredith, what I'm excited about is exploring this directly and with you along this journey. And I'm also very hopeful that we will have many topics led around this space in the coming year, that we will have opportunities for people to lean in. I know that you and I would both invite people to reach out to us to connect on this topic, whether you're scared about it or you're passionate about it. 
let's really try to bring the human back into the workplace mm -hmm. and see what we can do to maximize the future of those that are around us, the future of all people, and also the future of organizations. It depends on it. And I thank you so much for joining us today for this episode. I hope our listeners enjoyed the engagement and the passion and the education and the intelligence around this topic today. And we look forward to your feedback. So thank you for being here. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Getting support, advice, and encouragement from someone objective can be invaluable in terms of improving your leadership and advancing your career. Learn how to get faster, better results through coaching at talentmagnetinstitute.com slash coaching results. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.